Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. This Saturday night, make sure that you walk on over to Walters for UFC 275 as Glover Teixeira will defend his UFC light heavyweight championship for the first time. Walters is also the best spot in Navy Yard to watch the NBA Finals. Game 3 tips at 9 p.m. this Wednesday. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Michael Franco, first pitch swinging, skies one of the air, deep left center, way back, going, going, and gone, goodbye. Boy, the only man on the field that moved was the left fielder, Albert Almora Jr., and he gives the Nationals a little bit of breathing room, 416 feet. It's the Nationals five and the Reds three. C-Shack sets. He kicks, he delivers, and the pitch outside, throw down to first, tag play, and it's out! He's out! They sneak in behind Ruiz to Bell. They pick off Senzel, the trail runner. And if that one holds, a curly W's in the books. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, June 6, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, a series for the Nats at the Cincinnati Reds that started off in such a sad, depressing way with that route of a loss for the Nats on Thursday night winds up being a series win for the Nats as they have taken three of four at the Cincinnati Reds in this battle of the two worst teams in the National League. The Nats may be bad, but they're not as bad as the Reds. Uh, A 5-4 win on Sunday afternoon, thanks in no small part to the defensive heroics of catcher K. Barrett Ruiz. Uh, The Nats now, for just the second time this season, have a three-game winning streak. The Nats now are 21-35. and That is the second-worst record in the NL. And these last three games at the Reds, in conjunction with what has gone on over the previous three days for AAA Rochester, more on that in a bit, makes for what has to be the Nats' best three-day stretch of this season. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the best three days of this Nats season. Mark, I know that that's not saying a lot, but that is saying something, and it's nice to be able to say that. Well, and I think it has more to do with just the fact they you know, won those three games out. I think what's important here, we, we've talked all year long, it's not about the what, it's about the who. And there was a lot of who <laughs> this weekend that I think was really encouraging, both at the major league level and at the AAA level. So you look at who was helping make some of these wins possible. You have a young catcher, 
in Cabert Ruiz with the big play at the end of the game. You have a young shortstop in Luis Garcia at the plate. Looked very good in the field. Maybe not so much. We'll get to that. And at AAA, you have three starts, Steven Strasburg, Cade Cavalli, Cole Henry, all of them went about as well as you could ask for. And that has ramifications for the big league team progressively in order, I think, of when those will happen. Strasburg, Cavalli, and Henry, some of them sooner than others, obviously, but they're all coming here at some point. And that is maybe the most encouraging thought that we've had all year long as it relates to this organization and its long-term prospects. It's exciting. I mean, by the time we get to the post-All-Star break portion of the season, it's possible that Strasburg, Cavalli, and Henry are all in the Nats rotation, maybe by the time we get to August. I mean, make the timeline what you want it to be, but all three guys are on the come to varying extents in varying ways. But yes, when it comes to this 5-4 win at the Reds on Sunday afternoon, so K-Bert Ruiz, so let's first set this up because the circumstance is something that you need to understand here. So first of all, you had the Nats in the bottom of the ninth nursing a one-run lead at 5-4. You had the pitcher on the mound for the Nats, Steve Ciszek, as the Nats' top two relievers, Tanner Rainey and Kyle Finnegan, were unavailable due to each guy having pitched on each of the previous two days. And you had the Reds with runners on first and second. To whatever extent you have momentum in baseball, the momentum pretty clearly was on the side of the Reds. And then out of nowhere, K-Bert Ruiz fires a bullet to first baseman Josh Bell to pick off Nick Senzel to end the game. And the play was reviewed. After review, the call in the field stands. The runner is out. Ball game is over. I don't know what you saw. I thought with all the dust in the air, the dirt in the air, it was very hard to see what exactly the truth was. But I think because the play initially was ruled and out, there was not enough evidence to overturn that initial ruling. And the Nats end up getting this win on an absolute defensive gem by K-Bert Ruiz. I think you got to give credit to Josh Bell, who made a nice athletic catch of the baseball and getting uh, to make the tag of Senzel. But man, what an ending. It seemingly came out of nowhere. And the Nats, you know, I don't want to say they stole one, but man, they took a ninth inning that was not going their way and they changed the narrative completely. They absolutely did that. So two things here. Number one, I agree. I have no idea on that play or the one before in which Senzel was called safe on the ground or to short. I have no idea if either of those calls was made correctly. But the problem is, or maybe the you know for the good of it, for the Nationals, I didn't see anything in either replay to convince me that it should be overturned. And so in those cases, all you can do is stick with the initial call. If the first base umpire, Andy Fletcher, calls either of those the opposite way, I think they have to stand as well. And you heard officially after the review, the calls stood, which means they didn't see enough to overturn it. So a little bit of a break there from that standpoint. I have no idea. I think they got him right, but I don't know that for a fact. Now, number two, and this was interesting. You heard Bell mention this on the post game with Dan Colco. They had talked about this in advance. This seems like an advanced scouting thing that they had picked up on Senzel being known for taking extra long secondary leads after a pitch. And there was probably some kind of signal there between Ruiz and Bell that that play was on. You saw the pitch was kind of on the outside corner, like perfect type of pitch to do that on. You had Bell, who wasn't holding him on, immediately burst towards the base and Kbert make the perfect throw. That doesn't happen by chance. That happens by design and they pulled it off perfectly. So give them a lot of credit. It starts with the advanced planning of that, then to call it for that spot and then to actually execute it. Because if you botch that up, 
if the throw is offline, if Bell doesn't get there in time, if the ball gets away, God knows what happens next. So there is a dangerous play on their part. But I think also in a little way, a reflection of them understanding that might have been their best chance to get out of the inning, as opposed to letting C-Sheck face the heart of the lineup that was starting to come up. So a lot of things going on there, not just in the moment, but even leading up to that moment. And that speaks well to the Nats and, you know, game planning and strategy and uh, analysis. And that's not an area necessarily in which the Nats have excelled in recent years. So good job by them. You know, with Bear Ruiz, it's interesting because he's been kind of a steady Eddie for the Nats. You know, we've talked about guys getting hot and guys being in woeful slumps. And with Ruiz, he's just kind of been there this season. He's been solid. He certainly has been, you know, not spectacular. He's never really gone on an extended run. He's also never really had like a lengthy slump to where you're like, man, what's wrong with this guy? He did not have a great series in terms of his batting. In fact, he went hitless in the series, but he did draw uh, a number of walks. In fact, he drew two walks in this game on Sunday afternoon. And, you know, for a guy who is supposed to be more of a hitting catcher than a defensive catcher, he's proving himself to be pretty adept as a defensive catcher. Now, he only went one of four on runners trying to steal on Sunday, but he did throw out Aristides Aquino on an attempt to steal a second base for the third out. He is 10 of 28 on runners trying to steal this season. And that play that he made to end the game, you know, that's what you call like a gumption play, you know, a chutzpah play. Like, you got to have some uh, some grapefruits to, to attempt something like that. And he attempted it and he succeeded with it. And I like that. I like that he trusts himself. He trusts his arm to make a throw like that. And then the Nats obviously trust him to make a throw like that. So, you know, I think this is worth keeping in mind with Kbit Ruiz. It's not just about his batting. He may well be a plus for the Nats as a defensive catcher. And obviously we know defensive catcher matters so much. So this is encouraging with Kbit Ruiz. Took some matzo balls to pull that one off. It made me think of, and I'm sure he's a guy that he grew up idolizing, is Yadier Molina. That's a Yadi kind of play. And you wonder how many young catchers, especially young Latino catchers, grew up watching Yadier Molina and had that in their mind of that's the kind of thing that they could think to do. Now, again, I don't think this was all on Kbert. I think they collectively had that worked out to pull that play off. But I think he has thrown the ball very well. I thought the stolen bases in this game were more off of Corbin than off of Ruiz. I thought he made some good throws that just didn't really have much of a chance because he didn't have enough time to do it. I think the game calling with him and Riley Adams is still a work in progress. And this is kind of one of those unspoken things that we don't think about a lot, but they've gone with veteran catchers for so long who you just trust, know how to call a game, know how to sequence pitches, how to set up hitters. And all of a sudden, for the first time, you have a couple of young catchers working with a staff that's not as experienced as in the past. And you're probably going to have mistakes along the way. There's going to be a learning process for them. And I have picked up some things behind the scenes that lead me to believe that that has been a little bit of a concern. But it's what you understand you're going to live with, with young catchers. You're going to have to let them grow into it and learn how to do all this. But in the bigger picture, I think Cabert Ruiz has shown that he is going to be a foundational piece for them. Yeah, you'd like a little more offense, certainly in the power department that hasn't come yet. But from a throwing standpoint, from a contact standpoint, and like you said, from a confidence standpoint, he's a quiet kid, but he plays with confidence. He knows he's a good player. I think at the end of the season, we're going to look back and say that Cabert Ruiz firmly established himself as this team's foundational catcher for a long time. Yeah, and I like the steadiness because the Nats have a number of guys who've been very up and down this season. And to have someone who it feels like you can count on to be what he is, game in, game out, I think there's some value in that. 
Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of Legal Headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. Trying to add at least one here is Hernandez. Jockeying down the line, and he hits it into right field past the diving Votto, and he will get the RBI. Hernandez into score. Ball misplayed by Aquino. Franco trying to get the third, and he's going to be safe. And an RBI single by Luis Garcia. So Mark talked about how, you know, the youth was on display in this series, and it was. Young players came through for the Nats in this series. Luis Garcia, boy, did he end up having an interesting series here for the Nats. So he, of course, now is the Nats everyday shortstop with Alcides Escobar on the injured list. Garcia in this game on Sunday afternoon, two for four with an RBI single and another single. Uh, he and an adds two run fourth with runners at the corners, a one out first pitch RBI single through the right side of the infield to tie the game at three. Garcia in the top of the ninth, a leadoff single through the right side of the infield. Luis Garcia in this series, six for 15 with two doubles, four singles and five RBI. All six of the hits came over the final three games of this series. So, you know, you talk about Garcia and Alcides Escobar, like name me the last series in which Alcides Escobar had six hits. So nice work offensively by Luis Garcia, but we certainly saw shakiness from him in this series defensively and, you know, not always on a play on which he was charged with an error. And, you know, you have with Luis Garcia, first of all, there is very much a spotlight on his defense. So every little thing with him defensively gets analyzed in a way that you don't have with any other Nats player right now. I am cognizant of that. And to an extent, it is unfair, but this is how it is. We know that the defense is why he stayed at AAA Rochester for so long. So in this bottom of the ninth inning, like I said, you had Steve Ciszek pitching, ultimately ends up being a scoreless bottom of the ninth. Ciszek got the save. Now, Ciszek himself put guys on base. He issued a leadoff five-pitch walk of Albert Almora Jr. And then came this Nick Senzel single. It was a two-out full count single. Runner goes the pitch, swinging a line drive, one up. Garcia has it. He's going to have to make the long throw to first. Bell the stretch. Safe! Safe is the call at first! He didn't like bobble the ball. He didn't make a bad throw, but he just, he seemed to take a bit too much time in getting off his throw from the outfield grass. Now, maybe if he does everything right, Senzel still ends up being safe, but there seemed to be almost like a casual nature to what he was doing, or maybe he just was trying to make sure he did everything right. And so in trying to make sure that he did everything right, he didn't do everything quickly. I'm not sure, but he clearly did not get rid of the baseball in time to get the out. He did not fire the baseball fast enough to get the out. And so it's one of those plays where it's like, okay, 
Did he really do anything wrong? I don't know, but that was not great defensive work, I would say, by Luis Garcia. Yeah, 100%. And this is exactly what they've been talking about all along. It's not trouble on the tough plays. It's carelessness sometimes on the routine plays. And they don't have to be errors. They don't have to be bobbles. They don't even have to be bad throws. When you have it pounded into your head as much as he has, you need to do this. You need to get your footwork right. You need to make sure you're in a good position to make a throw. It's almost like you can see the wheels spinning in his head as that play takes place. And it's like he's going through the process in his mind before he then throws the ball. And you can't afford to do that. You certainly can't afford to do that with a speedy leadoff hitter. And that also speaks to the pre-pitch preparation of knowing who the batter is, how fast he is, and now reacting accordingly. If it's their catcher, you can do all that in your head and make sure you set your feet and all that. If it's their leadoff hitter, you probably have to know going into it that you need to be quicker with it and not at the expense of your uh, fundamentals. Of course, you need that. But there's just that little split second that you work a little bit faster to make that play. And so these are all the things that they have been talking about with him. And you can absolutely understand why that's going through his mind because they keep pounding it into his head. And you saw it almost cost them this game. It didn't in the end, but it very easily could have cost them game. I like what I've seen offensively. And really, that's a continuation of what he was showing them at AAA. And if it was just based on offense, he would have been up here a lot sooner. But if you're going to play shortstop in the big leagues every day, you have got to be counted on to make every one of those plays because you can cost your team games. And, you know, hopefully he gets that figured out. But there's that fine balance between making sure you're doing everything right, but then not thinking about it, just having the muscle memory to make those plays over and over every time without looking like you're taking your time in the way he did on that play. Yeah, you worry about like a paralysis by analysis with Garcia, where you have everything weighing on you. Like, okay, I got to do this, and I have to do that, and I have to do it quickly. And you know, this guy Sinzel can run quickly, and so it, it is tough. I, I get that it's not easy, but you know, you had in almost every game in this series at least a moment, if not multiple moments, with Garcia, and just again, not obvious, blatant screw ups, but things that you know looked awkward or choppy. You know, there was a play in Game One of the series, Sinzel had to hit up the middle. And Garcia made this like awkward attempt at a sliding catch where you were like, he was like trying to slide on his knees. And it was like, that's not the way to try to dive after that baseball. But he did that. He had that throwing error on Friday night where he took a long time. He like shuffled his feet too much. And you could, you're thinking about the footwork you would think on something like that. So, you know, work in progress defensively, but already production offensively. Nice to see that. Lane Thomas ended up having a really nice series. Lane Thomas had another multi-hit game on Sunday afternoon. Uh, He was in that starting center fielder in this game. Victor Robles only ended up starting two of the four games in this series, started uh, the first two games. But Lane on Sunday afternoon, two for five with a double and a single. He ended up two run first, had a double to left field, despite having been down to the count at 1.12, top of the seventh, a one-out single up the middle. Uh, The ball went off the red shortstop, Kyle Farmer. So, you know, for Lane Thomas in this series, yes, the three home runs on Friday night, but he also had four other hits in this series. He, in this series, went seven of 14, three homers, a double, three singles, and a walk. So it's not just about the homers. You know, with Lane, we've seen him have some good games and then, like, disappear. At least for the final three games of this series, Lane Thomas was a factor. And like we said the other night, what do you have to lose at this point? Just put him out there every day. Let him play. Let him see what he can do with consistent playing time because it worked last year, especially when he was hitting near the top of the lineup. You know, between Robles and Yadiel Hernandez, I don't think you have to say that either one has to be playing every day. I would think more often than not, you want Robles in center and Thomas in left. 
but I would like to see that continue. I think at this point, you owe it to him, you owe it to the organization to give Lane Thomas a good long look and make a determination. What is he? Is he a potential starting outfielder for you? Is he a potential top of the order hitter for you? Or is he merely a backup outfielder or is he not even that? I don't think they really know the final answer to that question yet. The only way to find out is to play him. And I think they're in a perfect position to do just that and try to find out. Yeah. Uh, Yadiel Hernandez, as we've discussed, has cooled off. Uh, Yadiel on Sunday afternoon, 0 for 4 with a couple of strikeouts. Some other offensive uh, notes here for the Nats in this game on Sunday afternoon. So Josh Bell only had one hit, but this was an impressive hit. Bell in a Nats two-run first, another first inning in which the Nats scored at least a run, and many times it's been multiple runs. Bell a two-out, two-run double toward the right field corner on a 1-2 pitch for a 2-0 Nats lead. So really nice piece of hitting there by Josh Bell. I also want to make mention of Michael Franco. Franco had some big hits in that wild win for the Nats on Saturday. And Franco on Sunday afternoon only had one hit. He did leave three men on base, but the hit was a home run. Uh, Franco in the Nats, one run sixth, a two-out first pitch solo homer to left center to put the Nats up 5-3. You know, I I mentioned this on the last installment of the podcast. I know you're probably not going to get a lot from Michael Franco, but he is doing some nice things offensively. He's been excellent with runners in scoring position. You see the home run on Sunday afternoon. So I don't know, maybe he can hit himself into being some sort of a trade piece for Mike Rizzo to get something back. But he's doing a pretty good job here, especially in this series. Franco had a nice series for the Nats. Yeah, I think the key there is like the overall numbers don't blow you away at all, but it's not how much he's producing, it's when he's producing. He has been coming through in a way that a lot of guys have not in big spots in the game. That was a towering home run off a guy who throws the ball pretty hard in the sixth inning and Luis Castillo. I like what I've seen from him. I don't know how to describe it. There's just like this sort of confidence and swagger to him. It's kind of like, hey, I've been here. I've done this before. He's not phased by anything. You know, he's not a great player. I don't think he's suddenly going to become the player the Phillies thought he was going to be a long time ago. But all things considered, in the situation that he was thrown into, uh, and when Carter Keboom got hurt, he's done everything they could ask of him in that spot. That's, you know, been a, a godsend for them. And just back to that bell double in the first inning. I thought that was huge because the two at-bats before that, Soto and Cruz, can't even get the runners moved up from second and third. Nobody out. You got the heart of your lineup out and Soto on an 0-2 pitch grounds out to third and then Cruz strikes out pretty quickly. So they needed Josh Bell to pick them up in that spot because the two big boys did not get the job done there. Yeah, Bell in a lot of ways saved that inning. Uh, Soto off having hit three homers over the previous two games. He on Sunday afternoon went 0 for 4 with a walk and two strikeouts left four men on base. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. It feels like everything is going up these days, including home prices. And so there's no better time to have the look of your home go up and the value of your home go up with new windows from Window Nation. Get two free windows with every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing for two full years. Take advantage of this offer. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Window Nation windows are the best. 
The average window nation installer has over 16 years of experience with over 20,000 windows installed. Window Nation offers 1,500 custom window combinations, including vinyl, wood, and fiberglass. Window Nation is the best. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you ask for the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi. Two free windows for every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing for two full years. 866-90NATION or windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Corbin kicks, delivers. Swing and a line drive. Base hit left field. Toward the line. Votto around third can trot home as that one goes all the way to the wall. Played on the carom by Yadiel Hernandez. And Stevenson is into second base. The Reds have back-to-back doubles. Three hits in a row and four hits out of five batters. The only out on the fly ball to the wall in right center. And the Reds have taken the lead here in the bottom of the first inning at Cincinnati 3 and Washington 2. So the Nats starting pitcher on Sunday afternoon was Patrick Corbin. And as has been the case previously, the first inning did not go well for Patrick Corbin. And initially, it felt like, oh boy, here we go again. It feels like we've had this a good bit here lately uh, with Nationals pitchers, where the guy starts off poorly and you say to yourself, oh boy, here we go again. Well, Corbin ended up settling down. But yeah, the first inning was not a good inning for him. So Corbin in this game, three runs in six innings. He gave up nine hits, two doubles, and seven singles. But he had five strikeouts versus no walks. He threw 91 pitches. Uh, Corbin allowed the three runs in the bottom of the first. He gave up a first pitch leadoff single to Nick Senzel up the middle. Gave up a one-out full count RBI single to Tommy Pham through the left side of the infield to cut the Nats' lead to 2-1. Although, of all the praise we just showered upon K-Bert Ruiz, I have to say, K-Bert failed to catch what I thought was a pretty good throw from Yadiel Hernandez. And Senzel, if Ruiz catches that baseball, maybe possibly is out at home. It's hard to say. But anyway, the run scored there. Corbin gave up a one-out opposite field RBI double to Joey Votto off the left field wall to tie the game at 2 Corbin gave up a one-out RBI double to Tyler Stevenson to left field for a 3-2 Reds lead. And then Corbin gave up another hit, a two-out full-count infield single to Albert Almora Jr. on a ball that went off Corbin's glove. Then, though, Corbin gave you scoreless innings after that first inning. Ended up going six innings. Now, the only clean inning that Corbin had was a perfect bottom of the second inning. Like I said, he gave up nine hits, but no walks was good. Five strikeouts good, especially considering the extent to which he's declined as a strikeout pitcher. And 
what could have been one of these Patrick Corbin debacles ended up being not nearly as bad as we thought that it might be. Yeah. Look, that first inning, they were all over him. They were aggressive early in the count. There was loud contact. Even the first two outs were a fly ball to the warning track and center that off the bat you thought might go out, especially in that ballpark. And then a line out rocket to left field on the first pitch of an at bat. They were sitting fastball and they were on him early on. So kudos to Patrick Corbin for minimizing the damage and then settling down after that. And the key number to me out of that whole start, the zero walks. And let's be honest, zero home runs because we know that has in the past been a problem for him. Now, he's been better this year. We've noted that. It's really been more about giving up hits and giving up walks. The home run has not been the issue, but you worried in that ballpark that it would be. So he kept the ball in the yard, didn't give them any free passes. They had to earn their way on. And after that first inning, really solid. And on a day when you knew the bullpen was shorthanded, you have to get innings from your starter. And say what you want about Patrick Corbin. I'm not going to try to defend this at all and make it sound like he's done a good job for them. He has not. The one thing you can say about him, though, is he takes the ball every fifth day and he's going to give you close to 100 pitches. They may not always be an effective 100 pitches, but he's going to give you 100 and often that's getting you through the sixth inning. He is more consistently getting deeper in games than guys like Fetty, Adone, and Gray. Yes, he's giving up runs and he's not the Patrick Corbin they need him to be, but sometimes just eating those innings is important and this was especially a day when innings probably trumped everything else that he was going to give you. Especially with what ended up happening with the Nationals' first reliever in the game. You know, one of the more telling things with Patrick Corbin is his what's called ex-WOBA, which is expected weighted on base average. It's basically quality of contact. Patrick Corbin has gotten whacked around this season. You read ex-WOBA like you read a batting average. Entering this game, his ex-WOBA on the season was 389. I mean, batters had just teed off on him. And we saw that, like you said, uh, in that first inning on Sunday afternoon. So it could have been much worse than it ended up being. He actually technically had a quality start on Sunday afternoon with the three runs uh, in the six innings. You know, when Mike Rizzo talked to you guys the other day, I actually thought the most interesting thing that he said had to do with Corbin because... Rizzo didn't sound that down on Corbin, and, and some of this may have been just Rizzo uh, putting on a show, putting on a front, but you know, he said, hey, look, Patrick's velocity is still more or less where we want it to be. His spin rate is more or less where we want it to be. He actually sort of challenged Corbin's manhood and was like, he needs to throw more strikes or he needs to stop nibbling, basically, is what he said. Did you see that on Sunday? Because it is notable. Rizzo says that a few days ago, and then a few days later, Corbin has five strikeouts versus no walks. Yeah, I was going to say the no walks is a big part of that. And the uh, total pitch count, 58 out of 91. It's not great, but it's not bad uh, in terms of strikes. And you still see so much with him, the non-competitive pitches, the pitches that come out of the hand, you just know you don't even have to think about swinging at. There were a few of them in this game, maybe less than in the past. But yeah, I think Rizzo wants him to be aggressive. He wants him to throw both sides of the plate. We've talked about that a lot. Davey keeps talking about how he needs to keep the ball down in the zone. What you heard from Rizzo there, and it kind of mirrors what we've been hearing from everybody when the topic of Patrick Corbin keeps coming up, it's that they don't seem to think there's any reason for him to be struggling like this because the velocity is there. The spin rate is there. He still has the ability to throw the slider really well. You know, yes, they want him throwing more changeups, but that, you know, can't be the only thing. Like he was successful with the peripherals looking pretty similar only a few years ago. So why is it that all of a sudden he can't? And does that have to do with aggressiveness? Does it have to do with pitch selection? Like we were talking before about the young catchers, I think that is part of the equation 
of getting these young catchers on the same page with him and understanding how to get the most out of him and the pitches that they call. So I think there's a frustration on everybody's part, but also an understanding of this isn't a lost cause in terms of like, this guy just has nothing left. Like we've seen pitchers who clearly can't throw the way they used to and their careers are over and they're stuck with them. And in this case, maybe it's foolhardy to believe it, but in their minds, they're saying he still should have the ability to be an effective pitcher. We just got to figure out how to get him to be that guy again. Yeah, I, I think what's tough is that this is year three. And so when a guy's bad for one season, maybe two, the idea is to fix him. When a guy is bad for three straight years, and by the way, is progressively worse in each season, then you have to come to terms with the reality that this maybe is just who he is. But we'll see. He did rebound in this start on Sunday afternoon for sure. So the Nats bullpen on Sunday afternoon was a story in and of itself. Tanner Rainey had pitched in each of the last two games. Kyle Finnegan had pitched in each of the last two games. Go figure. These guys were like never pitching, and now they pitch so often they're not available in what ended up being a one-run win for the Nats uh, to win a series here. So Davey Martinez ended up using three relievers in this game. The three relievers were Victor Arano, Erasmo Ramirez, and Steve Ciszek. B bullpen, anyone. So Arano tossed a perfect bottom of the seventh. He began the bottom of the eighth, which was telling in and of itself, but he ended up having a play on which he got hurt and also got charged with a fielding error. This was a leadoff tapper by Brandon Drury on which Ramirez got injured. He failed to catch the baseball with his glove and then in going back for the ball, did something to his left leg and then crumbled to the infield grass. And then that was it. He was uh, taken out of the game. Erasmo Ramirez came into the game in this bottom of the eighth inning. So he comes in with a runner on first, nobody out, and that's up 5-3. Ramirez gives up two singles, including a two-out Opposite field RBI single to Tyler Stevenson to right field to cut the Nats' lead to 5-4. And then we got what we got with Steve Ciszek, who, yes, did ultimately toss a scoreless bottom of the ninth for the save, but he issued a leadoff five-pitch walk of Albert Almora Jr. and then gave up that two-out single to Nick Senzel on the Luis Garcia play there. So a lot happening here with this Nats' bullpen. What did Davey Martinez have to say after the game regarding Victor Arano? So the thing that they didn't even really know at the time, and it seems like they still don't know 100%, is was it his hamstring or the back of his knee? He was kind of clutching both areas. It seemed like he landed awkwardly. You could see that last step he took the leg, the, almost like he hyperextended it and went down in the heap thinking, oh my God, what did I just do? I'm not entirely sure. And the pitch swung on and hit up the first baseline. Arano boots the ball and he hurt himself to boot. He is down on the infield on his back. It was a very awkward play on what probably should not have been. It was a fairly routine little tapper to the right side of the infield, the kind of thing they work on every day in spring training. So he's going for an MRI, you know, when they get to Miami on Monday, and then they'll have some answers for us on Tuesday. You know, I wouldn't think this is something, even if it's not serious, it's probably going to take a little bit just to heal from whatever trauma that occurred there. You hope it's nothing more than that because Arano actually has been – you know, he's not the A bullpen, but he's kind of the A1. He's sort of the next guy up after that. And they have used him in some fairly big spots. So you hope it's nothing more serious, but not a real good looking play. And, you know, like you said, it was telling the fact that they were trying to get at least four outs from him, if not more. That was the situation they were in in this game where they needed Victor Rano not only to pitch the seventh, but at least part of the eighth as well. Yeah. Um, and that you can win a game. I mean, look, you're playing at the Reds. I understand that. But it's nice that you can now say, okay, we won a game in which neither of our top two relievers were available to us. Like, I think there is something to be said for that, but it was not easy. There's no doubt about that. 
And top three, really, because Carl Edwards Jr., who has turned into a very good reliever, had pitched three of the last four, so he was also unavailable. Yeah, I mean, Edwards is emerging as a potential trade piece here. He's done a nice job. You know, there's an example of a minor league contract potentially paying off big time with the job that he's done for the Nats. I mean, he was great at AAA, and after a bad first outing with the Nats, he's been really good since then. So, yeah, uh, all three guys unavailable for the Nats in this game on Sunday afternoon. Well, also on Sunday afternoon, we had yet another notable game for AAA Rochester. Boy, what a weekend this ended up being for Rochester. You had Steven Strasburg on Friday night making his latest and perhaps final minor league rehab assignment start. You had Cade Cavalli on sun- on Saturday in game one of a doubleheader having his latest dominant outing. And we on Sunday afternoon had the AAA debut of Cole Henry. Uh, the Nances past Thursday promoted Henry from AA Harrisburg to Rochester. Cole Henry is a second-round pick of the Nats. They took him in the 2020 draft out of LSU. This is his age 22 season. He was outstanding for Harrisburg this season. Seven starts, 23 and two-thirds innings, ERA of 0.76. And Henry, on Sunday afternoon in his debut for Rochester, uh, did well. Uh, this ended up being an 11-2 win for Rochester over the Buffalo Bisons. Henry in this game, five scoreless innings. Now, you know, I wasn't necessarily dominant. He only had three strikeouts, gave up three hits in a walk, uh, 57 pitches, 36 strikes versus 21 balls. But five scoreless innings are five scoreless innings. And he gets off to a nice start in his run here at AAA. So we know Strasburg could be starting for the Nats as soon as this week. Uh, Cavalli now has been good in each of his last three starts off having had some problems over his first seven starts for Rochester this season. What do you think with Henry? What do you think they're thinking in terms of how long at AAA? A month? Two months? Obviously, it's going to depend on how he's looking. But the timeline here with Cole Henry in Mike Rizzo's mind is likely what do you think? So, I, you know, I'm looking at this as, and thinking in my mind, they gave him two months at AA. You probably want to give him two months at AAA. So I'm thinking early August. Now, if he is completely lights out for them, then maybe you can speed things up a little bit if he shows that he is ready. But, you know, ideally, I think they would want to give him a little bit more time than that. And maybe he does need more. Maybe we're talking about September. I do think we said the other day, once they promoted him to AAA, that to me is the indication uh, that they do expect him in the big leagues at some point this year. If he stays healthy, you know, doesn't get lit up at AAA or anything like that. So I think we will see him. The thing that he has that uh, Cavalli maybe doesn't, even though uh, they're drafted at the same time, he has been pitching longer in terms of his amateur career. Remember, Cavalli was a two-way player, didn't really pitch full-time until that last year at Oklahoma, whereas Henry uh, has pitched more. They view him as a more polished pitcher, doesn't have the pure stuff that Cavalli does, but they think he is more advanced in terms of his pitching approach expertise, you know, whatever term you want to use for any of that. So that makes him a guy that you could see fast tracking, which is basically what we're seeing here. Good start for him. Obviously, you want to see more of it consistency start to start how he does at that level. I'm looking at early August, but I think that's very much fungible in either direction, depending on how the performance goes. But if you're talking back to back, Cavalli and Henry, total of 12 innings, one run allowed, and what, 15 strikeouts and maybe three total walks, if I have that right? That's really good. <laughs> you want to see more of that. That is very encouraging from allegedly your top two pitching prospects, certainly your two best pitching prospects who are at the upper levels and close to being big league ready. 
Yeah, and this rise of Cole Henry is so needed, not just because of the state of the Nats organizational pitching, but two prominent first-round pitcher picks for the Nats in recent years, Mason Denneberg and Jackson Rutledge. Denneberg has struggled with injury. Rutledge has had his own issues. Really, only Cavalli has done well in terms of these recent first-round picks who have been pitchers for the Nats. And so to have a guy like Henry, I don't want to say come out of nowhere because, again, he was a second-round pick, but nobody was looking at him the way we're looking at him now say, coming into this season, like his stock is soaring and that he's doing this and that you could end this season with both Cavalli and Henry in the major league rotation. That's really good news. And if those guys do well and you exit this season feeling really good about Cavalli and Henry and maybe Josiah Gray's on track and now you have three young pitchers all of a sudden as foundational pieces. I mean, I know that is going to require a lot of things going well, but man, that changes the conversation about this rebuild if you have something like that. And that's why I think, as we were saying, this weekend is so uplifting uh, because of who we're talking about and what it could mean in the big picture. I think I said at the beginning of the year, I'm much more interested in the second half of this year than I am the first half of the year because I think we're going to see more guys in the second half who could figure into the long run that the most disappointing or frustrating part of the season to date to me isn't that they're losing so many games. It's that the majority of guys on this team are placeholders. There's a few who we do think are going to be part of this in the long run, but most of them are here in the short term until more young guys are ready. Well, we're now finally starting to see some evidence of those young guys getting closer. We have Luis Garcia up here now. You have Gray and Adone. You have Ruiz. Cavalli should be coming soon. Henry could be coming at some point after that. And I know he's not young, but Steven Strasburg is very close to returning now. And I'm going to put it in that category of somebody who is hopefully going to be here for the second half of the year who wasn't for the first and who does just because of the contract still potentially figure into their long-term plans. Long way to go before we know how he's going to fit into it. But for the first time really all year, there are some encouraging developments about guys who could actually help them win, not just this year, but beyond. Well, next up for the Nats is their first scheduled off day since May 19th. Boy, it has been a while. Now, the Nats did have an off day on May 27th due to a rainout, uh, but the Nats finally get a scheduled off day on Monday for the first time in a while, and then they don't have another one uh, for a little while after that. But then after Monday comes a three-game series at the Miami Marlins, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and Thursday night, because the Marlins never let you on a getaway day have an afternoon game. Thank you very much, because, you know, you have to have all 18 people show up in Miami at night as opposed to, you know, 16 people in the afternoon. Anyway, uh, Davey Martinez, during his postgame press conference on Sunday, said that Yoan Adon will pitch on Tuesday, Josiah Gray will pitch on Wednesday, and then Thursday is TBD. Should we take it that TBD is Latin for Steven Strasburg, or should we not be assuming that just yet? I think it's Latin for Steven Strasburg if Monday's bullpen session goes well. You can get a lot into a few letters in Latin. They mean a lot, actually. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Typically, he would throw his bullpen two days after he starts. Well, that was actually Sunday. They decided to hold it off and have him go Monday on the off day in Miami. It's my understanding of it, which would push a start back. Typically, he would start three days after doing that. And so the fact that they've left Thursday's start as TBD suggests to me that they want to see how that bullpen session goes. And if it goes well, I think we very likely could see Steven Strasburg Thursday night in Miami. Now, if it doesn't, if there's any hiccup, like we said all along, they're not going to force that issue. I think that's also why Evan Lee is still here. 
He wasn't used at all in this series. He wasn't theory available out of the bullpen if something else happened. They could have had him start Tuesday. It's in theory his turn. Monday is really his turn, but they could have just pushed everyone else back and had him start Tuesday. Instead, it's a Doan and Grace, so they're kind of skipping Lee. So that to me says, see how Strasburg feels on Monday. If he is good to go, he starts Thursday, and now Evan Lee is available immediately as a lefty out of your bullpen. If something doesn't go well with Strasburg, you're not quite sure about it yet, then you hold off and you keep Lee available in case you need him to start instead on Thursday. So if the bullpen doesn't go well, would Strasburg make another minor league outing or is he done making minor league starts? No, I think he would make another one, You know, assuming he's not hurt. Like if the bullpen session ends because he felt something in his shoulder, that's a whole different story. But if for whatever reason he throws and it's like, man, I just don't quite feel right. Or if, if he's conveyed to them, you know what? I know the numbers have been great, but I'm not quite sure I'm there yet. I'd like one more. Yeah. He's been able to bounce back and forth. You know, I know they're making a big deal out of the fact that he was in Cincinnati. He was in New York as well in between his starts. So they can do that. He is officially still on the IL and you can do that when you're making rehab starts. So he's traveling with the team. It's entirely possible. I haven't looked up what the minor league schedule is this week, where that would be, but it's certainly possible he would say, I want one more and he would go pitch Thursday for one of the affiliates and maybe that's the last one. But the way they've played this, you know, they don't want to say anything yet because of course you never know what else might happen. But it seems to me like that Monday bullpen session is maybe the final hurdle to cross and just to make sure that everything goes fine. And once it does, and he says, yes, I'm good to go. I feel like I'm going to be watching Steven Strasburg pitch in front of a crowd on Thursday night in Miami that could very well be smaller than the crowds he pitched in front of in Rochester and Fredericksburg. It is hysterical to me that Miami insists on these night games for getaway days. Like nobody goes to your games no matter when they are, okay? Like you could be giving away million dollars in cash to every person in attendance and people still don't show up to these Marlins games. Like, please, it's ridiculous. MLB can't say something to them like, hey, can you please maybe adjust this because this is in the best interest of the entirety of MLB to have afternoon getaway games? So there actually was in the last CBA, not the one that was just signed, but in the last one, there were some new regulations about getaway days, and it's all based on how far the travel is for the team coming out of that. And so there are a few times where you see a team have to start a game earlier, like at six o'clock, they get away with that, or they move it even up to four o'clock. And it has to do with, well, if the team, the visiting team has to travel three hours or whatever it is, or X number of time zones away, then you have to do it earlier. And this is the weird one. So they start the games at 640. So maybe that allows them to fudge this a little bit. They look at it and say, oh, well, they're still in the Eastern time zone. So it's not a long trip. The flight from Miami to DC is about two hours and 45 minutes. It's actually a longer trip than like Chicago, Cincinnati, maybe even St. Louis. Teams that are in the Midwest in the central division are actually farther away. They're just in a different time zone. Miami's not as close as people think, but I think the wording of it doesn't take that into account. It has to do with the uh, time zone more so than the actual physical distance from your next game. Yeah. Entering Sunday, the Miami Marlins this season were averaging 11,585 fans at home games. Only the Oakland A's have been worse. And that's announced attendance. That is not actual in-person attendance. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, say what you want about the Nats. They are averaging close to 21,000, which is a drop off from where they were. But as bad team attendance goes, it's actually not that bad. The Marlins have been like this forever, it feels like, in terms of the attendance. 
Well, we will continue to monitor the NCAA Baseball Championship as we are taping this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Maryland has won to survive for at least another game. We'll be uh, playing again here on Sunday night. Virginia, unfortunately, has been ousted. The NCAA baseball tournament is complex. You have to, it's like studying the tax code in terms of understanding how a team avoids elimination and continues on. But it is a lot of fun. The baseball uh, is pretty cool to watch. And so it's been nice having all of these uh, regional teams, you know, mid Atlantic area teams in this tournament, at least so far. We'll see what transpires. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shovers. Again, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. Wear it to Miami and be among the dozens in attendance for Nats Marlins this week. Uh, you can get your Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And there you have it, folks. For the first time ever, an umpire in the field makes the final call on the radio. A Curly W's in the books on the appeal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.